Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk about financial data management or financial supply chain. We're going to talk to Rachel, who is a CEO and a co-founder of Intrio. She's based in St. Petersburg, Florida. So I'm really interested in her views on financial data management. What is it like to fight against big incumbents? What's wrong with financial data management today? and how her company is trying to change that. So welcome, Rachel. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. Always envious when somebody says I'm based in Florida. (laughs) Generally, plenty of sunshine all the time. Now, let's talk about what brought you to financial data management. What is your background? What's your backstory? How did you become interested in this? Yeah, I I always joke and say that I've never had a real job because I've just been doing this business since I was in college and nothing else, which has been a lot of fun. I studied finance traditionally in college. When I graduated, I slept on a couch for a while trying to get things off the ground and actually taught myself how to program. So back in the good old days, I was doing some coding to get Intronio off the ground, but not anymore. And the finance and the engineering kind of came together as Intronio launched as a fintech company. And the reason that we actually went into the data space is because we were originally, my my co-founder and I were working on building our own app that required data and the data was way too expensive and we we couldn't even launch our app. We couldn't get off the ground. We decided maybe we should take a look at the data industry (laughs) instead. Maybe there's a bigger problem to solve there. If we can't even afford data to plug into our own app, how is anybody else doing this? And that's where we started to really uncover some big problems and dream up some big solutions. I see. You founded Intrinio more than nine years ago, right? So what is Intrinio's mission? What is the problem that you're solving? Or you know, what have you seen that was so wrong with financial data, as you mentioned, when you were trying to build your app? So our mission is to use data to power a new generation of fintech innovation. In financial services, data is really the foundation of everything. But as we know, across many industries, the innovators aren't necessarily inside of the big institutions where all the money is. Oftentimes the innovators are in the garage or on their couch or in school, and they have the vision for where financial services needs to go. But if you combine the fact that they probably don't have a lot of money, those innovators and dreamers, with the fact that data is just wildly expensive, it doesn't create an environment that fosters innovation, which we so desperately need in the financial services space. And so our our vision really was that The irony is that those folks are the future of the industry. They're designing what Finance 2.0 needs to look like. So if we can find a way to make data easier for them, because at the end of the day, if you have a fintech company outside of human capital, data is going to be the most expensive thing you have to pay for. It's it's going to be a huge line item, a huge expense for you. We can't make hiring people cheaper, but we can certainly make that second cost more affordable and find a way to streamline things so that these innovators can get their hands on the data they need to, to make real. But what kind of data are we talking about here? 
primarily capital markets data, any type of data you would need to make an investment decision. So equities, stock price data, financial statements, earnings estimates, options data, ETFs, mutual. We deal primarily in kind of the investment capital market space. FinTech is broad, right? You can talk about payments, lending, insurance, but we are squarely in the capital markets vertical. So any data feeds that you would need if you were analyzing investments or building investment tools, apps, things of that nature. So why do you think that these sort of services or data is so expensive uh, when it's provided by the incumbents? This is not like uh, they've been around for hundreds of years and they don't use any technology. Some banks say for some segments, we use a lot of manual processes. That's why it's so expensive. But here, this is a data feed, right? Mm -hmm. So why is it so expensive, especially when you want to buy something exactly, as you said, for capital markets? Well, there's, there's two big factors behind that. The first is, as you alluded to a little bit, the innovator's dilemma, right? We're talking about companies as big as Bloomberg who have essentially 15 million lines of Fortran programming of, of code, which is extremely outdated technology. But how do you even begin to do things like machine learning or implement neural networks or, or modern technologies into a system that's that outdated? It's a, it's a big dilemma for these companies. They have systems, processes, thousands of people overseas that do things manually. It's really hard to rip that up and build something more streamlined. It's hard to justify that. And so they're faced with that classic innovator's dilemma. And the other piece that is if you pull the curtain back, what most people don't see, because this isn't a super sexy industry, right? It's behind the scenes, it's data. There are so many things happening behind the scenes, sourcing the data, cleaning the data, correctly entitling the data, following all the exchange rules, the right delivery format, method, documentation, a security master, making sure that tickers and things are linked up correctly. It's complicated. Each one of those things I just mentioned could really be a business in and of itself. And it's very technical to, to get all of those things. So it, there's a lot going on. It's very complicated. And most of these big firms just still do things manually. Good point that you brought up a Fortran. There are a lot of people who <laughs> don't know what it is, right? And yep. in some bigger incumbents, uh, sometimes when banks have an issue, they need to call people back out of retirement to help them with the Fortran code. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that these big data providers use that still. Yep. And now the other reason that they sometimes give why the pricing is so expensive is that they say, <laughs> look, we send you something that has been already cleaned up and it's correct. Maybe in the good old days when you were buying data, if you were in an investment bank, that fact that would offer the anybody who would find a mistake $50. And this <laughs> led some of the analysts who were staying up all night anyway to look for some very opaque stock tickers and find a mistake, etc. But apparently, hopefully now, this is a lot cleaner. So what would you say to that? Is this another reason why it's worth paying for financial data so much money because it's already been... Uh, cleaned up and uh, reviewed and it's all ready to go? My view is that it's incredibly ironic. That's the way the market still thinks about it. Primarily because you have these big name vendors who, yes, they've been around forever. And so you could argue that people trust in that and trust in those names. But the irony is that these firms, because of the innovators dilemma, are doing things very manually. And so you have these massive workforces of people that are plugging in data who can have a fat finger mistake, right? The human error component is nearly completely out of control. They can't control that. We are using math and machine learning to clean the data, and that is a lot easier to control. So the irony is smaller company trying to make things more efficient using more technology, we actually have higher data quality than these big firms. But as a startup, 
ourselves, that's a challenging thing to deal with. We, how do we prove that? And we've got clients that come to us all the time that are just floored when they realize this big name brand company, they do have a lot of mistakes. They have to pay people to fix their data quality, as you mentioned. So they're riding off of these brand names that seem to tout high quality when in fact, if you really look at the ground floor of the data at what's going on, their processes are so outdated that their quality is, is questionable. It's impossible to have a completely perfect data set in, a, in any way, but but what we're doing is a lot more efficient. It's just, it's difficult to prove that because we'd have to go subscribe to a ton of really expensive data feeds <laughs> to put them side by side. But we've got some very sophisticated processes for that. It's just a matter of opening up the data so people can see for themselves. All right, maybe let's talk about one more feature of this business. It's the speed or the latency. Is that relevant for what you do? Because sometimes people even want it to be uh, located closer to the exchange and things like this. If you read that book on uh, Flash Boys, yes. right? So uh, is this something that you need to deal with as well? Absolutely. And I'll talk about it in two parts. The first is, as you mentioned, market data. The best way that you could possibly get access to the data is co-locating as closely as you can to the exchange wildly expensive. You've got to set up physical servers in close proximity to the exchange for 98, I would say, percent of people that need market data. That's just completely unrealistic for them. It's way too expensive. You move further down the scale, and, and, and we don't even do that. As, as a company, we don't co-locate um, directly with exchanges. But if you move further down the scale, you end up with the SIP or the MBBO consolidated tape feed, which you have to get from either NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Also very expensive. There's not a lot of supply, right? There's only two providers of that data. And it's arguably the creme de la creme, but still, especially in the fintech and innovator space, it's wildly expensive. I mean, you could be talking north of $10,000 plus a month to access that data. So you move further down the scale, right, into where you want things to be more affordable, because at the end of the day, even a technology provider like us has to pay the exchange fees and then a technology fee on top of that. So this type of data is very complicated, right? And there's a million rules you can break, which is also really scary as a fintech company. If you don't pay the right exchange fee or entitle the data correctly, the SEC could come after you. So it's almost, it's scary to deal with market data on this side. You can't afford it on one end. And at any point in the journey, you could break a rule. That's a space that we understand really well at Intranio. And we help match alternative products for fintech companies that need something affordable. For example, we launched a new product recently called the MX feed, which weaves prices together from some of the smaller exchanges. You alluded to one of them with Flashpoise, the IEX exchange. We weave those prices together with Memex to create a really high volume, high quality feed that has no exchange fees and no per user fees. So if you were to buy a really expensive feed or, or co-locate or do something on that end, and then you display that data inside of an app, you have to pay a fee for every single one of your users that looks at the data. It's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> so we've created products that get completely around that. It's a really high quality, accurate pricing feed, but you don't have to worry about any of those per user fees. So in the display space, it's extremely valuable. So that's one side to latency, right? Which is really complicated and probably could be a, a podcast in and of itself. On the flip side, with data that's not quite like streaming or updated regularly, like for example, fundamental data, which is another area of focus for us, because we are systematically sourcing and cleaning that data, for example, directly from the SEC versus having to send it overseas for manual cleanup, we have that data available to our users within 30 minutes of a company's filings going public. The big vendors, it's several days before you get access to that data because they have to manually enter in and clean all of it. So we have to be flexible on the market data side, but we've got some of the fastest access to fundamental data on the, on the market. 
Brilliant. So let's look at it from uh, one one other angle. Just if you paint a picture, how does your solution work? And uh, you mentioned you use machine learning, etc. What kind of machine learning are we talking about? I guess this is still uh, supervised learning algorithms of some sort, and you need to have subscriptions to these exchanges, etc. So how then your solution works from a business perspective? How can you make money out of this? So um, on the exchange side, we work with a variety of partners to deliver that data so that we don't have to co-locate and have servers. There's a lot of technology partners out there. We're partnered with Intercontinental Exchange. We're partnered with NASDAQ, all the stock exchanges. And so we add in a technology layer on the market data side. So for example, if you were to go to the CBOE and stream options data, prices. There's like billions of options contracts every day, right? It's nearly impossible for somebody who isn't a data business to consume and filter out all that data. So we filter out all of the crap contracts and we have a filtered options feed. We calculate implied volatility, Greeks, other metrics to make that really an actual comprehensive usable feed with an API or a WebSocket tool wrapped around the other end. Everything I just mentioned, you don't want to deal with that if you're not a data company. You're not in the business of of having to deal with that. So you could go directly to NASDAQ or directly to the CBOE, but there is so much other work that needs to be done to make the data actually usable after it leaves that kind of initial point. So we have a lot of value wrapped around there and we we just charge a technology fee on top of the exchange fee when we deliver those market data solutions. On the fundamental side, you kind of nailed it, right? We're using super, supervised machine learning and algorithmic approach in terms of how do, how do we take in all of this fundamental data and standardize and normalize it. We use something that our engineers like to call human-guided machine learning, which may sound like a backward step, but it's actually a, a big forward step for us. If you think about just in the United States, 10,000 plus publicly traded companies filing their financial statements every quarter with a 44,000 tag taxonomy right? These accountants can use any tags they want when they're filing these financial statements. So that's a pretty Mm. big taxonomy to have to wrangle and stay on top of. Companies have new business lines and then there's a new line item in their filings. And how does the system handle that? If we recognize a change in the accounting standards and some of our analysts recognize that, if they adjust something, they can rerun every single filing and fix the entire data set in a matter of seconds. (laughs) Now, if you can imagine you're a big vendor who has to do all that manually, you've got a lot of work to do, right? So we have a completely systematized process in terms of directly sourcing that data, cleaning it, adjusting it over time, staying on top of changes. And that's been in a nutshell how how that side of the business works with also a lot of rules in place in terms of data quality. If we see a certain standard deviation issue in the data, we can fix it on the fly. So um, we call that the data journey, right? It's And it's a long journey of sourcing, cleaning, data quality checks, all of those things along the way, the, the more you can automate that. All right, understood. You talked a lot about fintechs that are operating in the capital market space. So who are your target clients? Are these capital markets fintechs or is there a wider group of uh, companies or people that you're targeting? Great question. So the the number one thing I want to start with here to, to help set the stage is that there's a big difference between looking at data and using data. So and this is something that, that we've come across quite a bit. Historically, most people used data just by looking at it. You're going to yahoofinance.com. You're looking at your Bloomberg terminal. To a degree, maybe you're pulling some of that data into Excel. But for the most part, you're really just looking at dashboards and analytics, and you're looking at data that way. 
our clients are building with the data. They want to get raw access through an API so that they can do something with it. And that's really everything we're about. That's our ethos is we're going to give you the data. We want you to build with it. Most of the large vendors have a conflict of interest here because if they open up their APIs to developers and innovators, they might build a better terminal, build a better workstation. And that's in direct conflict and potentially cannibalizing one of their major revenue streams. We don't have any dashboards, any analytics, any kind of you know, display of the data. We are just a database company with a great API, right? So we want you to be the one that builds on the data. So in that sense, our target market are their innovators, their builders, their developers, their quants, their fintech founders who are really want to actually build and do something with the data. Obviously, I mentioned capital markets fintechs, right? So on that side of the market, our clients are building risk analytics software, portfolio management tools, stock screeners. AI stock investing bots, investor education websites, kind of anything in that kind of capital markets investing tools and apps and websites. But what's been interesting also from a trends perspective is that the amount of financial institutions who you wouldn't think they've already got all the data they need or they wouldn't be a successful financial institution. They've been reaching out to us, bigger and bigger names, brokerage firms, banks, asset management firms. And I believe what's happening here, what we're seeing in our user behavior is that these companies are starting to think like fintechs. They're looking at Robinhood and saying, maybe we should modernize our brokerage platform. Maybe we should build a mobile app for for our clients and, and try to keep up with these fintechs. If these institutions aren't thinking like fintechs, they're so far behind already. And so as those projects, those kind of fintech internal projects pop up, they need data and they need it fast. They don't have time to go figure out licensing with a big vendor. They have an, an entrepreneurial project popping up inside of a big institution they have to prove it to their bosses. They need to go fast. They need good data. It can't cost too much in the beginning. And that's where we can plug in. It's almost like we're continuing to serve those innovative fintech users. They just now also exist inside of the institutions, which is encouraging to see and, and great for us as well. Great to hear. Now, I like that you mentioned uh, a few times uh, the innovator's dilemma, Clayton Christensen's book and or books and the blogs and all this around that thinking, which basically explains, for example, Kodak, uh, you know, uh, ignorant or not so intelligent that they didn't want to create a digital camera. Apparently, they actually had a patent to do and they ended up being out, almost out, out of business or in their original form out of business. When you talk about size of this opportunity uh, and you say, look, uh, this is what the incumbents do, like Bloomberg or some exchanges. Of course, they have divisions that sell financial data uh, as well. Then if you look at that market and the market where you are, how does that look like in terms of size? And it sounds like they may be overlapping or your portion of the pie is actually growing faster. But tell us. So the market for financial data globally is over $700 billion, which sounds big. But when you think about it, financial data ends up on the TV, on news stations and universities for academic research. It ends up on corporate websites. It ends up inside of tools, apps, Excel, websites. It goes everywhere, right? This data is needed in a variety of ways from media to academics to professional and retail investors. It's everywhere. Now, to your point, are we addressing that $700 billion market? No, not all of it. Um, and, and a good example of that is, is this trend of alternative data, right? We do have some feeds that are alternative in nature, but that's a huge industry. And there's a lot of growth there. But And it's difficult almost 
to think of what is the fintech slice within that, right? Because we're not building terminals and workstations. We're not on that side of the data delivery. We're on the feed and API side. But the difficulty, which is a a good thing, is that the fintech industry is growing so quickly that it's almost difficult at any point in time to capture how much is in the 700 billion. But to my earlier point, those institutions are starting, we're expanding the size of that industry just by the access that we're giving. So we're helping to grow it. And the institutions within that large market are becoming fintechs. So it's a complicated answer, but it's a big industry, a lot of different players. Yeah. So just like in that book, you had different curves and for incumbents, basically like Kodak based, some of the, that market wasn't interesting back then. But similarly as here for you, this is interesting. And whoever is uh, too late to the game, maybe will have regrets, but fair enough. We'll see. So uh, where are you based? How big is your team? Because you're based in Florida. So of course, Great to hear that you don't have to be co-located, yeah. you know, with the Chicago Exchange, <laughs> especially now in winter. But where, where is your team? So we are a bit decentralized now that now that we've been working our way through the, pan- the COVID pandemic, somewhat headquartered in the St. Petersburg, Florida area and Tampa Bay. We have a lot of marketing sales executive down here. Our engineers are everywhere, a little bit concentrated in Colorado. We've been finding a lot of good talent out there. But when the pandemic hit, we had to hire the smartest people we could find wherever they were. And to be fair, really, that is the future of work. But the fact that we are in Florida, I think is quite interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, ARK Invest just relocated down here, Dynasty Financial Partners, who's going public. We've got Raymond James headquartered down here, a lot of Franklin Templeton, a lot of private equity. There's an interesting financial presence in Florida that I don't think people would have thought of years ago. And so it is actually a great place to be. And we're also looking at this kind of this rise of the rest movement where people are realizing, especially post-pandemic, that the best opportunities are not necessarily in the big cities. There's a lot of overvalued opportunities in San Fran and New York and probably a lot of undervalued opportunities elsewhere. And so even from a, a VC and investor perspective, we're seeing that um, rise of the rest movement where if, if I was fundraising for Intrinio five years ago, people thought I was crazy to be in Florida. And now they're grateful because they know we're saving so much money. Plus it's warm and sunny. Can't complain about that. But yeah, it's it, things have definitely changed since I first started the business. In the good old days, if you were not one hour drive from Sandhill Road, you probably wouldn't be able to raise any significant amount of money. But let's stay on the positive note, because (laughs) we talked about what is wrong with financial data management. But if you look back over all that time that you worked in this field, Mm -hmm. have you seen what, what what have been maybe the most remarkable innovations, though, whether that came from other parties or maybe potentially your competitors as well, and it could be complementary mm-hmm. and helping you as well or not. Where are the positives? So I think if you would ask the general market that question, they would tell you alternative data, which I have a lot of issues right. with. I, you know, I, I think it's interesting and it's a really interesting new source of alpha, but but is it, right? After enough people get access to it, is there alpha there anymore? And it's also complicated. Most people look at alternative data, but I don't know that a lot of alternative data actually makes it into investment decisions. So I'm a little bearish on that, honestly. Something that other people might say also is data marketplaces, right? There's this concept of decentralizing data and data catalogs. There's probably been 15 data marketplaces that have popped up in the past um, year here. Everybody wants to be the aggregator and the seller of all these data feeds. Even Amazon is getting into financial data. So 
I don't like the concept of marketplaces. We actually used to have one and we don't have our model that way anymore because data is really complicated as we've touched on a lot here. It's not transactional. It's not something that you can just go buy like you would on Amazon. And we've learned that in our time. I don't actually think the answer is alternative data. I don't think it's the business model of the marketplace. The two things that are most interesting to me, um, the first is this concept that I already mentioned of looking at data versus using data and the power of the developer. The developer historically was in the back office and not important, right? They didn't get what they wanted. But the developer within the financial institution is becoming increasingly important. Every bank is hiring a 19-year-old data scientist and every hedge fund is becoming a quant fund. Everything is becoming a lot more systematic, which puts the power in the hands of the technical users, the developers, the quants, the data scientists. And so seeing the host of developer tools pop up, right? In the payments industry, Stripe is a great example, but developer tools, developer first type of models, the, the, the explosion of the amount of APIs that are available and that kind of culture of the developer rising in importance, I think is fascinating. And that's part of the reason FinTech is exploding the way it is. So that's something I look at a lot. I look a lot at, we have so many companies in the AI space that buy data from us. And they're all taking a little bit of a different approach, but natural language processing, machine learning, it's all having its iPhone moment. It's so available now that our clients are doing some pretty incredible things, putting the data together with AI. Um, and so that's a whole other podcast again in, in and of itself on, on what they're doing. But yeah, I think that the rise of the developer, the intersection of data and AI, and then lastly, Snowflake. Snowflake IPO'd and it's got, Amazon's closely following in their footsteps, but this delivery method for specific use cases in kind of the quantum investment space is huge. We're seeing a big uptick in the amount of users that want to get our data through Snowflake. So those types of innovations on the infrastructure side have been pretty exciting as well. Fantastic, because that's what I'm saying to the participants of the courses that I coach at Imperial on digital transformation or in Singapore Management University on AI ML. So the future is bright if you take these courses or you are or you, you try to educate yourself when it comes to these technologies. So great stuff. Now, before we wrap up, I have two easy questions for you. <laughs> One is, what is your favorite business book? I know you're busy and I yeah. know that it's tough to, to read, but if you have something to recommend, that would be great. Yeah, this is an interesting one. So there's so many, but I really loved reading The Leadership Pipeline by Ram Sharan. People often forget about the human side of companies and startups and the management piece and the HR piece, which is takes up way more time than you think it's going to. But developing leaders, right? There are times in a startup journey where it makes sense to bring in an expert, a very experienced person from the outside in. But there are also times at which there's a famous quote, right? It's if your team is operating for months while you're trying to replace a leader, don't bring in someone, just promote somebody, right? <laughs> like they're, they're, somebody there is, is being a leader. But going from managing yourself to managing a small team to managing a manager to managing a bunch of managers, <laughs> they're completely different jobs that require completely different skill sets. And oftentimes the mistake companies make when they're promoting from within is not giving the, the education, the tools and the resources to those leaders as they're scaling up through the organization. I mean, that there's an entirely new set of skills you need to learn when you go from managing a team to managing a manager for example. And so this really walks you through how to avoid a lot of mistakes there um, because having strong leaders is important at the startup level. And it's oftentimes best to promote them within but only if you kind of follow this pipeline of leadership and skills. So not something people talk about a lot, but it is a definitely a challenge for founders. 
Great, great uh, thought on this. Now, as we wrap up, I would like to ask you, what's the best way to reach out and what kind of parties would you like to hear from most? You can come to our website. It's www.entrinio.com. You can chat with our team there. You can ask, you can get in contact with me there too. If you tell them you want to talk to me, just chat us at intrinio.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Rachel Carpenter, and you can follow me on Twitter, Rachel underscore A-N underscore C. So Twitter, LinkedIn, or our website are great ways to get in touch with us. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Rachel, and good luck to Intrinio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.